0: Understanding Armageddon Part 2. And you might recall that um, last week, if you were here, uh, we made it down from verse 11, we're in chapter 19, we made it down from verse 11 through verse 13. Now that didn't sound like we made a lot of progress, but we actually did because we had some introductory material. I have some introductory material this evening too, to help us. It's my opinion that the Battle of Armageddon is the flip side of Christ's coming? It's not a real war at all. It's actually the destruction of the lost. That uh, is the gathering of the Christians. The destruction of the lost. And the imagery that's used is imagery that's used in, in, you know, Matthew twenty-four, referring to seventy A.D., Mark thirteen, Luke twenty-one. These are where we really see Christ warning his disciples and the Christians to come about the great destruction of 70 A.D. But let's remember, 70 A.D. wasn't the end of the world. 70 A.D. was the end of the Jewish system. There would no longer be a Jewish system um, and of course the sacrificial system would be ended because Christ ended it. He rent the veil in two and now there's free access to God without an earthly priest. And we become priests and kings ourselves as Christians in the New Covenant. And we'll be talking about that uh, in the weeks to come at the 10 o'clock service. But right now turn to Hebrews. It would be good to remind ourselves of these things as we begin. The book of Hebrews, chapter 8. And this is just a little preview of the New Covenant and how it works. The New Covenant is better than the Old. And um, you know the Christians, the Christians um, really had a whole generation. The Jewish Christians had a whole generation to realize that they did not need the temple any longer. They did not need the sacrificial system anymore. There was a lot of controversy. There was a lot of problems. But within twenty years or so, most of them had realized that, and the apostle Paul helped a great deal. Hebrews chapter eight, verse six as we read it together. Hebrews 8, 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. As the covenant He mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For He finds fault with them when He says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, well, I'll establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And we need to know figuratively that uh, this is the collective people of God. Uh, all the Christian Jews and all the Christian Gentiles. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I showed, them, and I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, "'For this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel "'after those days,' declares the Lord." Then he goes to Jeremiah 31. "'I'll put my laws into their minds. "'I'll write them on their hearts. "'And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. "'They shall not teach each one his neighbor "'and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. "'For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. "'For I'll be merciful toward their iniquities.'" And I will remember their sins no more. And then look at verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, He makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. It's one of the keys that tells us that the book of Hebrews was written before 70 A.D. Helps us to understand that. And if the Apostle Paul is the author, as um, many believe, and I Personally, think that's probably true too. Um, Then it would have to be before 70 A.D. because Paul was martyred in the late 60s. So, with that being the case, there, um, the Christians, like I said, were assembling at the temple, and um, things were going well. It appeared for a time, but then the deacon Stephen preached his sermon and was martyred. You know, taken outside and and martyred. And persecution began. The persecution began by the Jews, against Jewish Christians uh, and being and, you know, and these Jewish Christians, they, they had a tough time, because being Jewish was deeply ingrained into them. It was cultural, it was religious. It was everything. Even the Apostle Paul, um, the apostle to the Gentiles, went to the temple to pay vows to show he was still a loyal Jew, even though he was converted and Jew and Gentile together. The, broken, the wall broken down between Jew and Gentile. Now it's God's people or those that are not God's people. And of course it all turned south when he went to the temple and uh, it had been prophesied that that would happen. But Paul wanted to preach to his people after the flesh like he tells us in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Those chapters just show the love that he had for his Jewish people. And how he was even willing, if it were possible, to give up his own soul to perdition if he could save them. Well, he couldn't give up his own soul to perdition, but he gave up his life and willingly went to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel. And then in God's providence, uh, being sent to Rome, where he had continued to preach, even under house arrest. So the Romans were instrumental in destroying the temple and bringing Jerusalem to ruins, but really, if you think about it, it was God who warred against the old covenant system that refused to accept Christ. The old covenant system should have shown them Christ and shown them the Messiah. But when he came, he was by and large rejected. And of course, um, that's, um, well, they wanted to stay with their old symbolic ways instead of the new reality. So we can see 70 AD as kind of. A literal rendering of Armageddon, but it wasn't the whole world. It was the Jewish system. Okay. And now we have, of course, uh, the, the battle, the battle royale, the final battle that's going to take place at the end of the world when Christ returns, and the sheep and the goats are separated. We'll see that scripture in just a moment. Armageddon is the literal fulfillment of Psalm 2. We're not going to read Psalm 2 again, we've looked at it last week in in detail. But Psalm 2 is the kings of the earth raging against the King of kings and Lord of lords. And Psalm 2 happens in every age, we need to realize that. God's enemies are always fighting Him. And Psalm 2 is the fulfillment, it's finally fulfilled here in Revelation 19 in Armageddon when there are no more enemies." Psalm 2 is a warning, repent now before it's too late because when Christ comes it will be too late to repent because the enemies of God are suddenly destroyed in a moment by the brightness of His coming, as it says in 2 Thessalonians 3. So let's remember we're talking about future prophecy. It's best understood once it's fulfilled. We'll do our best to understand it today, but when we get to chapter 20, we'll get there tonight of course, But when we get to chapter 20 we're going to see that uh, good men sometimes disagree on the different ways these things work their way through. And that's okay. That's okay. Good men disagree and uh, people change their minds. I've changed my mind. Others change their mind. I may change my mind again someday. Who knows? This is just the way it is with future prophecy. We cannot be a thousand percent sure. We can see the big picture but the smaller details. Okay. Well, we shouldn't separate over those. In fact, if we want to be orthodox and have an orthodox view of eschatology, I think uh, chapters 31 and 32 of our confession do a great job of that. And you can read that later. It's very simple. It lays things out very simply and leaves a lot of questions unanswered. But that's so that uh, there can be people of different sorts that can attest to that. Be they post-millennial, uh, be, even, be they pre-millennial. Uh, pre-millennial dispensational would have a problem. But uh, be they pre-millennial, or if they be like myself, millennial. So that's where we're at. Now, let's just start with Revelation 19, verse 14. We should read just up to it, just to get the context. Verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Okay, new material, verse 14, "'And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses.'" Okay. Remember what's the symbol for purity? The armies of Heaven or the host of Heaven. This almost always uh, refers to angels, but let's remember at the end we're going to dwell with angels. Angels and ourselves will be dwelling together in Heaven at the moment uh, that's actually happening. Uh, Turn to Jude 14. Jude's an interesting book because um, on Sunday... On Wednesday nights we've talked a little bit about um, the book of First Enoch, and um, we have a quote here in the book of Jude from First Enoch, or at least an allusion to it. doesn't mean First Enoch is inspired, because it's not, but uh, it does show that uh, this was known and understood and appreciated. 1 uh, Enoch probably being written 100 or 200 years before Christ. Um, Jude 14 says, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, and that doesn't mean literally seven, it it, you know, because there can be other generations that are put within there. Sometimes the generations skip, but the and they just go from a grandfather to call him a father. The seventh from Adam prophesied saying, Behold the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones, to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly. Uh, of all, and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And then it goes on to make application. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But there you can see, here it's attributed to Enoch, this very thing that we see of Armageddon. The Lord comes with ten thousands of His holy ones. And if you want to turn there, if you just want to listen, uh, let's go to the book of Matthew and uh, we give a couple of verses from there. Matthew 24 and Matthew 25 are, are vital in understanding eschatology. And uh, Matthew 24 is really a puzzle to many. Um, I've preached sermons on it. They're available if you want to, to listen to them that uh, I think really show Matthew 24 in the spirit of revelation and showing exactly what's going to happen, but not necessarily exactly chronologically always. Matthew 24, verse 30, and he said, let's start in verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And certainly, John's telling us that same thing. Uh, John, who was there for Christ Jesus to say this, also sees visions of this same thing. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he'll send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they'll gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And then if you just flip over to Matthew 25, start reading in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in all His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He'll sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He'll separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates His sheep from the goats." And of course the sheep on the right hand, the goats on the left. And, and you can read the rest of it uh, later for time's sake. But this is the way that God often talks. We're going to see when we get to Revelation 20 uh, that uh, really what's being called um, the judgment of nations is really the judgment of individuals. Okay. And really the way the nations will fall out. We have nations today today. But the nations will fall out on that day, the sheep on the right hand, the goats on the left. And it's talking about people, real people, not just some uh, amorphous nation that just really, you know, is a conglomeration. No. These are individuals that make up the nations that we're talking about. So in Revelation here, nineteen fourteen, you go back to Revelation if you would, and we've seen this before in Revelation chapter 14. I'm giving an outline because you can get lost very quickly going through these things quick. At least you can look up the verses later. Revelation 14, verse number 14. And here's the harvest of the earth, is what my Bible calls it, and I think that's really a good heading for this. Then I looked, and behold a white cloud, and seated on the cloud one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Now who do you think that is? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, We're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ now. With a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. And of course the angel's not demanding and telling Christ what to do, he's announcing what Christ is doing. So he who sat on the cloud, a cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who had authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. This whole idea of grapes, trampling the grapes as it says in Isaiah, the winepress of God. All these things, they they go together. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle. That just shown us the magnitude of the destruction in symbolic and vision form. Well, in vision, Christ is the reaper. Key verse, son of man, a son of man in verse 14. And um, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, this is prophecy. So it's taking the form of visions and not in the form of history. And remember it also is not chronological. That's why I keep going back and back and back in the book of Revelation to see what we've already seen. And look at 1714. 1714. And they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. So what could be along with the Holy Ones, the angels, that uh, there may be saints um, also uh, coming back at that particular time too. Certainly are saints going to be with the Lord uh, in the second coming. And so how it's all going to take place is, is rather difficult to know. Some have said it's going to be the 144,000 uh, that are, are special and chosen, and uh, we've seen them twice in the book of Revelation. Well, at any rate, to make it as simple as we can, the Lord returns and there are those that are going into eternal glory with, and bliss with the King of Heaven and those that are going to eternal destruction and eternal death in the lake of fire. Well what we learn is all of heaven, saints and angels are on the side of King the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. All men who are outside of Christ are the army who opposes him. And Proverbs tells us that though hand in, go in hand, they will not go unpunished. And we see their punishment. Verse 15 of chapter 19. Verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He'll rule, the, rule them with a rod of iron and tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Now you might notice I divided up chapter five, or verse fifteen on purpose that particular way so you could see it. Uh, Isaiah forty nine two you don't need to turn there, but it says he made my mouth like a sharp sword. And this is the preincarnate Christ in one of those famous servant of Jehovah passages. The sharp sword is the word of judgment that Christ will render. Obviously there's not a literal sword coming out of His mouth. And with this sword He will smite the nations. Isaiah 11 4. But with righteousness He shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And He shall strike the earth with the rod of His mouth, and with the breath of His lips He shall kill the wicked. So here we have the sharp sword again being mentioned as an instrument of war. And then in Psalm 2, he'll rule them with a rod of iron. And then, treading out the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. Last week we read Isaiah 62, 63, 2-6, through six. who is this that comes from Eden? All his garments clothed in blood, you know, soaked in blood. And uh, that's the hymn that we sing that's based off of Isaiah 63. Uh, who is this that comes from? Edom. And so this is what's taking place here. This idea of a sharp sword, it's not the first time we've seen it in the book of Revelation. Uh, look at one sixteen, keep your finger here. But Revelation 1.16 as John sees a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ in His glory. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Look at 2.18. This is where the application of the sharp sword is made to the church in Pergamum. Chapter 2, verse 12. And the angel of the church of Pergamum write, the words of him... Who has the sharp, two-edged sword? And so, in that particular case, what we see is a warning to Pergamum, one of Christ's church churches, but the church that has a problem—they aren't taking care of church discipline as they should. In fact, we can see this, I think, in verse 18, if I remember correctly. Uh, yeah, can okay, we go on down? Well, it's in there. We read the whole thing about their immorality and how they had, had the teachings of Balaam and taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. You have some that hold the teaching on the Nicolaitans. That's interesting of itself as we've said when we went to that passage. Basically what it amounts to is heal war on them. Notice what it says there in verse 16. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. The whole idea here is that they were to exercise church discipline properly on these that were sowing dissension and teaching evil doctrines. And instead they tolerated it. And Christ says, okay, I'll take the sword of my mouth and war against them myself and, and remove them that particular way. Okay, back to chapter 19. Back to chapter 19. <clears throat> verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We've already seen that. We've seen it now here it is again. And I think the interesting contrast here is with verse 12. Notice what it says in verse number 12. Um, his eyes are like a flame of fire, on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. But now in verse 16, we see that he has a name that is known and can be known. It's on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What should we make of that? That he has a name that no one knows but himself, and then he has one that's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I think really what we're being told is this. In verse 12, a name written only and known by himself has to do with Christ Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, being absolutely infinite, and we will spend all of eternity getting to know the Lord better and better and better. We'll never come to the end of it. We can't come to the end of it. How do you come to the end of infinity when you're finite? And we'll always be finite. Okay. But He's the infinite God. And of course God the Father, it's easy to think of Him as infinite or maybe easier, but the Son is like the Father in that respect too. And so we'll spend all of our time really knowing more and more and more. Never come to the end of knowing Him. That's the idea, a name that no one knows. You can't know it fully. Names are very, very important in the Scriptures. But then, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There's a revealed name, you know. And on the thighs the place where a warrior wore his sword. The symbolic place also that you would swear oaths. You might remember in the book of Genesis, uh, Abraham, as he's nearing the end of his life, sends his servant out to get a bride for Isaac. And what does he do? He has his servant place his hand on Isaac's thigh. And swear that he will not allow uh, a foreign woman to marry his son, but instead will find a bride from amongst the relatives. And the servant, obviously a wise man, and must be a God-fearer himself, uh, says, um, well, what if I can't find her or she won't go with me? And Abraham says, well, the Lord will go with you, but if that happens you're released from this vow. You know, release from this oath. Okay. and Of course, Rebekah was more than willing to go with him. Okay, so, you know, we could look at Nebuchadnezzar. You mentioned this morning about Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar chap- in Daniel chapter 4 is really a tremendous place to go. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar, of course, um, saw himself as the greatest king on the earth. And truthfully, at that particular time in history, amongst all the nations, he was the greatest king. He really was. But um, he very quickly learned to be humbled, well, maybe not so quickly, seven years of humbling. That's a long time. you know And then he comes to his senses after being acting like a beast and being treated like a beast. And it says in Daniel 4:34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand Or say to him, what have you done? Well, he learned his lesson, didn't he? Greatest king of all. Now he becomes basically an animal in mind. Comes to himself, restored to the throne, and extols the king of kings and lord of lords. Okay, verse 17 of Revelation 9. And you notice I am skipping verses here for sake of time. Verse, and you can look them up later if you would so choose to do so. And if you really want to make a deep dive, and I decided not to go that deep of a dive, you can look up the cross-references for those verses that you look up. And just keep on going. And you'll go and go and go. And you'll end up with a book as thick as Beale's book like that. <laughs> That's what will happen to you. Revelation 17 and 18 of chapter 19. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun... With a loud voice he called to the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Now, that's pretty comprehensive, isn't it? You know, Free and slave, small and great. Okay, It's comprehensive because it is comprehensive. It's the destruction of all come to this figurative feast, so to speak. I have to say it's figurative because truthfully, since this is the end of all things, there aren't going to be any birds to eat the the corpses. You know, that's just the truth of the matter. But it's the vision that we see, and it's the symbolism that's used, and that's how prophecy always comes to us. It always comes to us in symbolic language. Go back to eighteen one, we saw another time that something like this happened. After this, which just means the next vision I saw, another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, and, and then it goes on and on. And then we saw in detail the destruction of Babylon. But I would posit to you that most likely the three pictures of destruction we have. The destruction of Babylon probably takes place at the second coming or just before the second coming. We're going to have to talk about the little season of um, Revelation chapter 20. And um, there's two different views amongst amillennialists of the little season. We'll talk about that. And so Babylon is destroyed at the second coming or just before the second coming by the beast and the false prophet, who symbolize anti-Christian government and anti-Christian religion. Well could be that God allows Satan to fight against himself, destroy culture and civilization, human civilization, which is symbolized by Babylon, and then become destroyed themselves as they take it upon themselves to war. So we'll talk about that in more detail. When we get to Revelation chapter 20 and the different views that exist there. But this comes, what we're talking about here in in Revelation 19 actually comes from Ezekiel. Ezekiel 38 and 39. And because of time I'm going to wait just a little bit and uh, deal with that when we get to this passage in Revelation 20. Revelation 20 verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations. That's what he does. Now, remember, he was bound for a thousand years, so he could not deceive the nations any longer. That's what it says in verse 3. Okay. Well, now he's released to deceive the nations. We'll talk about that. That are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers like the sand of the sea. Uh, by the way, the promise was to Abraham that his descendants would be like the sand of the sea and like the stars of the sky. If you remember, you know, well, here are those that are the opponents. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire, and the beloved city, I believe there is the church, by the way. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they shall be tormented day and night forever. So we have actually seen three destruction, three total annihilation pictures. Babylon, the beast and false prophet destroyed together, and then Satan destroyed together. And it well could be that what we're looking at is something that's happening simultaneously, just different visions and and pictures of what's happening. Or in Babylon's case it could be a very short period of time that uh, there's just absolute warfare. You know, this world always has warfare. You think about it. We spent 20 years in Afghanistan. And uh, some, some people I mean, we, we've got people in our church that, are, have suf- that suffered greatly because of that war. Because they went over there to fight but they weren't fighting a, a fight to win. They were just kind of holding the enemy off. You know, they, they conquered Afghanistan for the most part, tried to rule it in proxy, and they were consistently fighting and the enemies were consistently setting up IUDs and, and all sorts of, of horrors like that. And 20 years, we said, time to leave. And what happened? Within a day it all fell apart. And Afghanistan is a horrible place today, as horrible as it was before we went there and fought. Well, you know, this is what happens. And now we've got the, the Russians embroiled in their war uh, you know, with Ukraine. And this is horrible for the people of Ukraine. This is horrible. It's horrible for the Russians too. They're sending their young men over there to fight and they're dying. They're dying in mass over there. Civilians are dying in Ukraine. And now it's I think it was yesterday or the day before was the one year anniversary. I think it was the day before. It was the one year anniversary of the invasion of, of Ukraine. And where are we? No closer to ending than when it started. And we are, it's a proxy war. We're sending weapons, we send, haven't sent troops yet. Haven't sent, and I just hope we don't. You know, that's my opinion. That's my opinion. But, um, you know, it's a proxy war. The Russians could be the 20 years. They had their Afghanistan. Evidently they've forgotten the lessons that they couldn't win. And now they've got themselves embroiled in another war. It's the history of man. War. Christ said, there'll be wars and rumors of wars, you know. And people, they see a war, and they say, oh, this, this must be the end of time. Well, you know, you know how, how about the 30 year war? How about, you know, how about uh, wars and more terrible than that? World War I. Nobody called it World War I back, back then, by the way. It, it took World War II before it got named World War I. It was called the war to end all wars. Uh, how did that work out? You know, and so. At any rate, it is the history of man to have wars. And if you think about it, not much is gained from a war. Not much of, there are just wars. Yeah, there are. But generally not much is gained from a war except bloodshed. Well, you know, if, if someone trying to take your freedom, you should fight. Absolutely. You know, fight, fight for freedom but when you're fighting a proxy war or a war that is somebody else's problem, my opinion is, don't don't go there. Don't do it. You know, that's my opinion. But if you're a neocon, you can go and you can do it. <laughs> so, okay. Anyway, anti-Christian governments, anti-Christian religion, and true individuals are thrown into the lake of fire, as we'll see in the rest of the book of Revelation. Now, as we, and, and Ezekiel 38 and 39, you can actually read those and, and understand it to, to be fitting right into here. Okay. There's, there's symbolic language that applies to the time, but it really looks all the way to the end. Now, verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast. If you remember when we talked about the mark of the beast, we said everybody has a mark. They're invisible marks. Uh, Christians have the mark of God on them. And the lost have the mark of the beast. But thankfully, that's in God's uh, foreknowledge, in God's Uh, election and God's doing, you know, uh, those that appear to have the mark of the beast or worship the beast and worship his idol are able to repent and come to Christ. And such were some of us. And then the Lord saved us. Okay. Well, those, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the throne. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. And thus we've come to the end of the world as we know it. You know? And it's true individuals that are thrown into the lake of fire at the end of chapter 20. But the beast and the false prophet are, are not really people at all. What they are are representative authority figures who rule today and those that follow them and oppose the sun. You know, it's not just the kings that do battle against God, it's all lost men, small and great. And you notice I put it there uh, up above in bold print so that you could see it, how comprehensive it is. And it's the sword that comes from the Savior's mouth that destroys them. And Martin Luther knew it well because the sword of the spirit is the word of God. And Jesus Christ is called the word of God. And it's by the word that they are destroyed. One little word will fell them, is how Luther put it in in the great hymn that we sing. So I conclude by asking you, is there any hope in this passage That's a pretty bleak passage, let's face it. We've been kind of, chapter 19 after we have the marriage supper of the Lamb, not a lot of happy things are happening. Okay, It's pretty terrible, and it's going to happen, and it is terrible. Is there any hope in this passage? I tell you, there's, there's no hope at the last day. At the coming of Christ, all his and our enemies are destroyed. But yes, there is hope today. Christ hasn't returned yet. We're living in the day of grace. There are no survivors that come out of this war that takes place. But it's not too late. It's not too late. The battle rages against Messiah on a daily basis. But today he conquers his enemies by the word of his mouth in bringing them to himself. Does it from the word of God does it from the preaching of the word of God, turns his enemies into his children. Such were some of you, enemies of God, and I was too, but in the powerful work of regeneration, which is really more mysterious, and if anything could be said to be hard, nothing's hard to God. But if anything could be said to be hard, regeneration is more difficult than destruction. You know, destruction, that's easy. Word of his mouth, gone, you know. But regeneration takes Christ Jesus going to the cross and being our substitute, living a holy life for us, dying, rising again, ascending into heaven, you know, obviously. More difficult than coming on a white horse and slaying them instantly with a word. He swings the sword of his mouth today. But how blessed are those of us who have been converted and need not fear the utter annihilation of Armageddon or the eternal destruction of the lake of fire. We're protected, we're safe, we're kept. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the remnant that you have in this world. You've always had a remnant. We'll see in the Old Testament days there was a remnant of true believers that participated in the temple, the tabernacle, participated in the symbols and the sacrifices. The true remnant participated in those things uh, with... um, circumcision and such, but we also know there were those that did not know you, did not know you in truth, were sometimes even persuaded to be idol worshipers and go after false gods that had participated in those very same things. But we thank you that you always have a faithful remnant. You still have a faithful remnant that looks to you and trusts you and believes in you and you have saved them. You've saved them by your grace. You've given them new hearts, as we saw in the book of Hebrews. Lord, I'm thankful to be amongst that number. I'm thankful for those that are about to take the the communion bread and wine to their lips. That, Lord, you actually have uh, saved them, and they are confessing that salvation as they participate in communion tonight. Just bless us, Father. Bless us, we pray. And make your face to shine upon us. We are a needy people. Oh, you've blessed us. We've had a couple of of babies born in just the the last couple, in the last month. Lord, you've been so good to us in that way. We are so thrilled to see new life come in. Father, this just shows that the world is continuing and you're in control and you are actually doing all the things that you promised that you will do. But Lord, it won't be that way forever. One day and, and very suddenly this world will come to an end. And it almost sounds like a fairy tale. And sometimes people elaborate in such a way that it really does become a fairy tale. But the way that it ends, Father, is sudden. And you're the one that ends it. It's your time. It's your way. And so we know, Father, that this is true. It's the Word of God. And we thank you for your Word revealed to us to show us what you're doing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.